Welcome, I'm Ryan Hicks, and this is Modern Business, the podcast to learn from franchise business leaders and explore new business technology. Our community is about sharing knowledge and tools that help us achieve our goals in business and beyond. Thanks for being here, and welcome to Modern Business. This podcast and this summer tour would not be possible without our sponsors, so please check them out, go to their websites, listen to their value propositions, and consider doing business with them. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I'm Zach Fishman. And I'm Ryan Hicks. And if there's one thing we've learned through the many episodes of Modern Business, if you work for a franchise, marketing is insanely difficult. We've hosted a lot of people way smarter than us, and we can all agree on this. Google is always updating its algorithm. Best practices for social media advertising are constantly changing. And no matter how hard you try, it feels impossible to keep up. If you're not, franchise fam, Ryan and I are so excited to introduce this week's sponsor, Scorpion, a marketing company that caters to your strategic needs of your franchise brand. Scorpion is an all-in-one marketing partner capable of handling everything your franchise needs, from your branding and website to your search engine optimization, online reputation, and paid advertising. But you don't have to take our word for it. Entrepreneur Magazine named Scorpion the number one franchise marketing company. To learn more, visit scorpion.co slash MB. That's scorpion.co slash MB. Welcome back to Modern Business Podcast, folks. This is Ryan Hicks, and we have Mr. Zach Fishman with us. Hello, everybody. So we are in, this is day number 10 still. Uh, We're in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, we're excited to have this chat. Uh, We're huddled around a table and uh, this is some content that we think that all uh, all in the audience will certainly enjoy. Um, I'll introduce today's guest here in just a second. Um, But what we're going to talk about today is some market disruption. Um, We're going to chat about um, some of the impact of private equity and, and what's that ha- what that's having on the franchise community um, and also kind of how we all benefit from it all as we were just kind of chatting before about a game plan and I'm sure that it's going to go in uh, some very valuable directions kind of within that framework but um, would like to introduce Mr. Joe Matthews. I actually think you probably don't need any introduction at all. Um, Joe Matthews, CEO of Franchise Performance Performance Group, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy, love what you guys are doing. Great bus. So yeah, Thank so you. we appreciate it. I, I think that he got a kick out of the back of the bus, but we appreciate it. And you also got to step on board. What do you think of the inside? Like, you know, I uh, just, what can I say about the mothership? It was just fantastic <laughs> on every level. <laughs> well, we certainly look forward to this conversation. We look forward to having a happy hour thereafter. Um, but let's go ahead and jump in. For the folks that don't know you and haven't had the opportunity to do business with you, tell us a little bit about your background in franchising without rolling out the 1,000-mile-long resume, which I know that you have, but just to give folks some context of who you are and, and your background. Yeah, so like anybody my age uh, that got into franchise, got in by accident, my first job out of school uh, was working with this little sandwich chain uh, with 400 units that had been around 20 years. It turned out to be Subway. Uh, so uh, yeah, I started out with Zach's mom mm-hmm. uh, in Subway. She was our PR lady. Uh, yeah, it was Simon, right? Mm-hmm. No, wait. Oh, that's right. I'm okay. already learning, by the way. Okay, yeah. That. So I, I knew Sherry like forever. You know, we started together in franchise. We won't say the year, but we know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we won't say the year of 1985. And yeah, fast forward. You know, here we are, you know, 35 years later. So I've been in franchising since 85. Uh, we started Franchise Performance Group in 2002 uh, when 
we realized that there was nobody really to teach a franchising. You know, so so franchising was still from um, an economic theory standpoint and from a business format standpoint, the Wild West. Mm-hmm. So franchising has never done uh, for franchisors, which franchisors do for franchisees, which is study, identify, and then codify the model. Right. Mm-hmm. So so we started franchise <coughs> franchise performance group in two thousand and two, yeah, to be a franchising think tank. And to see what works in franchising across brands, across uh, investment platforms, across categories, across sectors, uh, you know, and what works in franchising and what's unique to the brand. And our takeaway is about 80% of it works across brand, across categories, and about 20% is unique to the brand and yeah, made it our mission uh, and purpose to you know, categorize what's in that 80 and what's in that 20. Mm-hmm. Break that down a little bit for us. So when you're looking at franchising macro, how many brands are there? What are the numbers shake shake out to be just in terms of general numbers? So in uh, 2017, 2018, Fran Data published that there were about 3,800 brands uh, in franchise that filed FDDs, right? Yes. Uh, there's yeah, some franchisors own multiple brands. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but 3,800 brands in any given year, you know, there's anywhere from 200, 350 new brands coming into franchising. Mm-hmm. Uh, then a friend data also showed that, um, I think it was in 2017, might've been 18, there are 28,000 new business starts in franchising. Now that would be existing franchisees expanding mm-hmm. uh, in new franchisees and 27,000 the year before. So franchise has grown about 3% a year uh, in an economy where new business starts are down 20%, right? So franchising is holding its own. But if but how many new franchisees join uh, new systems a year? Most Nobody really knows, but in the mature brands that we've been with, you can always expect about 50% of the development is going to be existing, 50% new franchisees joining. It's to know, yeah. So if you take that 28,000, you cut it down the middle, which I think is a reasonable place to do. You got about 14, 13,000, 14,000 new franchisees joining all systems. Mm-hmm. Now the uh, Franchise Sales Index, which was just published by Keith Gerson and FranConnect, they show at least on, they have a random sampling of about 550 brands or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I when I called my actuary brother and said, give me the margin of error, he said it was about uh, 5%. So it's 95% accurate. So, so eight, they're showing more than 80, as high as 87% of the deal flow was being done by brands with 75 units or more. Okay. Wow. So if you take now eight, now uh, going back to Frank Connect, they show more than 80% of the brands having 100 units or less, right? Mm-hmm. So you literally got the 80-20 rule. You got 80% of the deals being done by less than 20% of the brands. So if you take, you know, you map it out, that only leaves about 3,000, maybe 4,000 new franchisees for about 3,000 emerging growth brands. So that those dog, those numbers say that dogs don't hunt, right? Yeah. So so we, we could see that coming about two or three years ago. I, I ran the math. I was like, holy crap. You know, if I'm an emerging growth franchisor, uh, I should be concerned. You know, so, so we've been trying to raise the red flag for the last two years. And probably the nicest thing I've been called was Debbie Downer. <laughs> like you millennials, I don't even know what that means. You know, apparently it's a gender fluid uh, negative term that uh, applied to people who used to being pessimists. Yeah. But uh, anyway, yes. It's true. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, it, it, you know we are in a disruptive market. Now, the good news to franchisors is franchisees don't buy 
franchising, they buy one brand, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so any one particular brand done right can buck the trend. Mm -hmm. Okay, but uh, you know, like uh, you know, the like any disrupted economy, what happens when supply is greater than demand? Yeah, your prices go down, yeah. right? Prices, mm -hmm. Now our our franchise fees going down. Yeah. Our royalties going down. Mm -mm. You know, so so franchising for whatever reason is really resisting basic economic theory and not right sizing uh, their own chip. No, they will, uh, but they haven't. Yeah, I'm over here yeah. shaking my head. Yes, because I was I was answering as like there should be something happening. It's not. You know, but private equity is coming in hard and fast, uh, and they're running numbers, and they're coming to the conclusion. You know, that sometimes the franchisee is worth more to the franchisor than the franchisor is to the franchisee. Mm -hmm. Now, you're going, we're going to enter into a, a new economy in franchising where there's going to be aggressive incentives uh, for franchisees to join the system. We're going to honor, which I don't think we do a great job at across brands. A lot of franchisors don't respect or don't honor. Uh, the investment dollars that franchisees put in, the risk, the mm -hmm. time. Uh, and, you know, you've been to the franchise sales conferences. There, there's a lot of conversation. How do we even trip them or you know, hook them, uh, you know, into our businesses as opposed to how do we build a worthy brand that's worthy of investment dollars? You know, that, then people line up, right? Yeah. You can tell the people, you can tell the people that, you know, when they're, you can tell the franchise sales people that are just smiling all the time because they just know, like, oh, I got all my leads. I haven't paid for anything yet, and I'm getting all these leads, and it's really easy. We got all these discovery days. I have the ability to do so many things, and there's not very many of them, but we can probably all count them on our count them on our hands who they are. But there's just aren't a lot. But I mean, I know you've known a lot of those guys over the years, and those guys are have been retired for years because they don't have to be working anymore. So I mean, it's just kind of a the luxury that you don't really see very often, unfortunately. And, and the market will always make room for a worthy brand, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's unique, it's profitable, sustainable, defensible, mm -hmm. right? And then, uh, and then and they know how to, they know the business of franchise and they know how to, you know, transfer that expertise to a franchisee and they know how to, uh, you know, honor you know, entrepreneurship and, and they value it, right? Mm -hmm. So franchisees become a mission critical uh, part of their execution. Uh, and, and those brands are in high demand. They're mm -hmm. always in high demand. There's perpetual high demand. What we have probably is a proliferation of noisy market with a lot of, uh, I'll call it B-level, C-level brands that just don't really deliver a lot of value uh, to the franchisee. Now, when we run economic models, you know, we show that the franchisor probably isn't even viable as a franchisor unless they have 50 to 100 territories or units open. Yep. Right. So because they're just living off the franchise fees and they haven't hit royalty self-sufficiency. Exactly. So, so our litmus test would be royalty self-sufficiency. So let's talk about what that means. That means you don't need to award a franchise to keep the lights on. And that all your fixed overhead, your reinvestment that's being done is only on recurring revenue. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. So that so that's the that's the first test of long-term viability of a franchisor. And our models show as many as 80% of franchisors in the market today even hit that level. Yep. Yeah, so that's concerning. Is there, a, is there a unit count that is required for people to get to that point on average, or would you say it just depends on industry? The and yeah, I mean, it, it, so what it depends on two things, right? So, so what royalties are you earning from the franchisee? So if you're mm -hmm. doing, if you got 5% of $300,000 in revenue, that's sure. fifteen grand, right? right? 
Uh, or if you have six percent of two million, it's one hundred twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. You're going to get there faster on one hundred twenty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, second is the complexity of the model. So the more technical a model is, okay, the more support a franchise is going to need, which means body count, right? Mm-hmm. Which weighs is the break-even point of the franchisor. Uh, but how, regardless how we model it, uh, our numbers show on the low side to be thirty to forty open territories independent of what the franchisor owns, company owned units. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's just to sustain the franchise organization. 30 to 40 would be my low number uh, to 100 operating territories would be my high number. And the assumption there is, you know, most of the franchisors are, franchisees are onesie twosies, mm-hmm. right? Not, you know, Not five bad. guys that all own 20, right? Right. Then my number would be 20. Right, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so my, my follow-up question to that too is that do you think that there is a particular um, type of space, whether it's automotive, it's food, it's, you know, it's, it's retail, it's, it's, you know, it's well, health and wellness retail, is there a particular uh, type of business that you see that, um, that franchisors are having a lot of success being royalty self-sufficient faster or not, not necessarily? Uh, there's some of the passion plays, mm-hmm. um, they'll award the franchise quicker, but a lot of these passion plays aren't sustainable business models. So mm-hmm. an example would be hot yoga, mm-hmm. all right? So my big concern when you, is when you tie a brand to a particular service, mm-hmm. okay, you just tied your brand to the product life cycle, mm-hmm. right? So as soon as something else replaces hot yoga, like room temperature yoga, cold yoga, you know, <laughs> Celsius yoga, who knows, right? Then all of a sudden hot yoga, what are, you, what are you gonna do? You, you just you just branded that that's where you are as opposed to a fitness brand, mm-hmm. right? So those guys will get there quicker, but they have a tendency in my world to be uh, suffer on long term sustainability. They don't get the recurring revenue, and they begin basically become pump and dump operations. Sure. They grab a bunch of franchise fee revenue, uh, make some money for themselves, and then they depart or the brand tanks uh, before you know, a lot of the operating or after the operating problems hit the fan. Is there an example of a brand that you know you've seen in your many years that you know was sustainable and became real self-sufficient relatively quickly? Just so people kind of have an idea of their mind of what that actually looks yeah, like. Yeah, I would say it's much more difficult. If you look at all the brands that we know today, mm-hmm. most of these brands started twenty years ago, right? When the market wasn't as noisy. I mean, there's twice as many franchisors out there today than there probably were 20, ten years ago, uh-huh. right? So if you look at most of the, some of the fitness concepts, like Orange Theory has done, a, I think, a very, very good job mm-hmm. uh, of growing in a crowded space and de- mm-hmm. delivering value yeah. uh, and kind of help re-segmenting fran- uh, fitness into smaller boutique mm-hmm. you know, concepts. Like, you know, they carved out a category. Mm-hmm. Um, five Guys did a really good job carving out a category uh, for uh, kind of the better burger. And it's really good too. Yeah, well, there's a lot, of, and there's a lot of guys <laughs> riding their wake, right? So a lot of the better burger, and that's starting to get commoditized, and that segment's slowing down. Uh, Marcos is doing a really good job in pizza. They're kind of doing what Five Guys did, but in the pizza category, right? So, out of the forty billion dollar pizza category, twenty billion of it is the you know four discount brands that we know: the Pizza Hut's, Little Caesars. Uh, Domino's, Domino's, and Taco John. Mm-hmm. Taco John's, Papa John's, not Taco oh, John's. It's something different. You know, so so Domino's, uh, pardon me, um, Marcos pops up, and they say we're going to put out a better product. So they're they're sandwiched in between the artisan New York Street, Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, pizza chains, which is extremely fragmented at twenty billion dollars, and and the discounters. They they play in that same space. That, 
mm-hmm. uh, that um, Five Guys did. They, you know, they carved out a niche. You know, they went from 370 their client of ours, and uh, they went from 375. They're, they're going to open their thousandth this year. Yeah. And they, they did all that growth after they were in business 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, so, so good. So, how do you? What is the advice out there to compete in this noisy market? You just mentioned in terms of positioning. Marcos did a really good, has done a good job, but if if you're an emerging brand listening to this and you're not at royalty self sufficiency, how are you looking at competing in this dis- disruptive world? Yes. Yeah, so, well, the good news is the success formula really hasn't radically changed. You know, so it, it's it's real simple, right? You just you, you put together a valuable brand uh, that provides wealth, predictable wealth to the franchisees, right? So like, let, let's let's think of the stock market for a second, I'll draw some analogies, yeah. right? Okay, so an emerging brand, okay, isn't going to have the proof of concept, right, of a 400 unit brand, like when Marcos hit their tipping point, or 400 units when somebody hit their tipping point. They just don't have the data points, right? So if you're, if you're gonna buy a, a stock that didn't have uh, the track record of another stock, what we'd expect. Yeah, there's, there's the index. higher returns, yeah. high, right? High, yep. So you, yeah, well, so you well, mitigate well, your risk. Yeah. yeah, so you mitigate your risk through higher returns. Yeah. Then you look at the franchisees, they, they're actually, they don't produce the returns of the big boys. So they're higher risk and they produce lower returns. Yep. Well, if you've got a higher risk business and you're producing lower returns, get out of the business, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, who wants to buy that, right? And, you know, so all, all that's happening in franchising is the chickens are coming home to roost, right? Mm-hmm. Now, so, so, so there's two things you can do if you're an emerging growth franchise. You, you raise your unit level economics. Beat everybody else that's out there in unit level economics. Now, that's not easy, mm-hmm. but it's possible. And that needs to... Yeah, so I think emerging growth franchisees, they're more consumed with franchise sales than they are with unilevel economics, which we call ULEs. Let's just call it ULE. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I, show me a, a, a model with good unilevel economics, and I'm going to show you perpetual demand. The market finds it out. Matter of fact, they seeking you out. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so, so that, that one would be consumed with unilevel economics and be consumed uh, with franchisee-franchisor relationships. If they're not built on trust... You know, have trusting relationships, and you, you've got to solve that equation, right? Now you can you can improve your unilevel economics by working with your suppliers. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can uh, you can drive sales, be more sophisticated uh, in sales and marketing, and you know what? And you may actually have to incent growth. You may have to do it artificially for a period of time, reduce or negate royalties for a year, hmm. right? Uh, it, 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 you might in certain margins. Is that what you're exactly. Yeah. You know, if you don't hit particular sales goals or just incent them okay. to join by, you know, do royalty free for a year, what'll happen is that'll hurt your cash flow. Yeah. It now, if I'm a franchisor, it doesn't hurt my equity because if I'm private equity looking at a business, right, those, those royalty rebates, yeah. they well, they melt off. Yeah. Right. They do recast earnings. They, they, they don't thin you on the equity side. Yeah. You know, so I'd be looking at my business long term. I'd be I'd be capitalized properly. Now, what does that mean? There's there's a myth out there in franchising that's been perpetuated, in my opinion, uh, by the cottage industry of consultants that take un- brands, put them in franchising, tell them it'll t- it cost you two hundred fifty thousand dollars to be a franchise, and then you'll grow your company using other people's money. Well, that's that, that's false. It doesn't work that way. You know, I don't know a sustainable brand that doesn't have one to two million dollars into it. So if you don't have a war chest today, or access to today, 
of one to two million dollars. You're just like every other undercapitalized franchisee that you have in your business, and and, and, and you're going to struggle just like that. You're right. So it would be drive unilevel economics. It would be uh, maintain franchisee franchisor relationships, and start to be capitalized because you're going to be reinvesting back in your brand. Uh, and, and you know, if you get involved in franchising, at least as it relates today. Uh, this is not a typical VC two to seven year play. Yeah. You're looking at you're, if you're not in it for at least if your window of opportunity is in ten years or more. Don't do it. Don't do it. This is a super interesting point um, because obviously fran- the the lure of franchising is is you grow through other people's money. So you don't have to have as much capital to open locations. Yada yada. Um, are are you seeing? Are you seeing? I know a lot of the the lure of, of franchising as we were talking before is on the multi unit operation side. Private equity groups are are buy, even. I've seen certain brands where they're coming in and they're they're just buying those specific regions of brands. Um, but are you seeing like startup? Are you startup franchisors essentially going out raising capital, which is what you're saying, being properly capitalized? Um, are you seeing that happen often, or is are you typically seeing? Folks going into business with without capitalization. Oh gosh, I've been doing this thirty five years. Are you guys old enough to know the Michelle MacGyver? I do. I actually used to work. Right. That so I would say every almost every franchisor comes in at least a, until recently is MacGyver. They're trying to do it on bubble gums, yeah. paper clips, and shoestrings. Wearing every hat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, why? Because of that myth. Yeah. That myth has been two hundred fifty thousand dollars is my kitty. That's what I need. You know, so, yeah, I, I think I told you guys when we came in, we started this, you know, I, I wrote a book to try to destroy some of these myths and talk about what a franchisor needs to look like at every stage in the, in the cycle to go from one unit you know, to 900 units uh, above and beyond, plus every inflection point along the way. Can we, let's walk through that a little bit. So from a big picture, what are those, what are those um, stages? Yeah, you can put any brand into a number of buckets. So there, so there, there, there's, um, I'll call it, we call it early stage, and that would be anything under 25 units. Okay, and that's, uh, there you're making it just on the pure hustle of the entrepreneur. And, um, and if you prove yourself, you really prove yourself in a locality or, or, some, or a locality in some contiguous markets. Yeah. But you don't have proof of con, multi-regional proof of concept. Now, when you get in the, in the broader market of franchisees who invest, would say you don't have proof of concept as a franchisor. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these 25 units, they start out as kind of friends and family business. They're clubby. Yeah. Okay. And then from 26 to 100 units, you start taking on early adopting uh, franchisees that it's interesting. Most of the broader market invest in a franchise because they want a proven process system, results, predictability. Yep. There are a group of franchisees that that's not what they want. They want to come in early. Yeah, yeah. They want a large territory, and they want a seat at the table. Yeah. Right. You know, they, they they want they want a seat in the boardroom, talking to the CEO, giving their opinion, and they want to be part of the proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because they're more entrepreneurial. That's what they want to do. That and that, that actually is value to them. Yeah. They want to be. Uh, they want to speed dial to the. You know, they want to be able to call the CEO on a cell phone at Sunday night at ten o'clock, and that's and that's what early said. That that is value when these people invest. They become the proving grounds, the, the, you know, the founding fathers of the brand. That gets to about 100 units, somewhere between 50 and 100 units. Okay, that's where the magic happens. So if you say, what's the major tipping point? It's that. Now, a lot of friends uh, get to 100 units and they fall apart, right? So, th- so that's where you either, A, you're too big to fix, 
or B, you did it right and you got a lift, right? But that's where all the mistakes, all the little shortcuts that you took along the way, hoping to get that, okay, that's when they all show up all at the same time and it's death by 10,000 paper cuts. Or if you build right, okay, that's where the market declares you're the next big brand, okay, you get lift. And we talk about the flywheel effect internally in our company. It's when the momentum all of a sudden creates its own momentum. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, so it's like you spend the first 100 units pushing a rock up the hill, doing everything you possibly do. That's when you're at, you crash. And all of a sudden, the rock now starts going down the hill. Yeah. And then the challenge stops. And there's a new challenge. It's called keep up. Right? Mm-hmm. Here's you're pushing, trying to make things happen. Now, now you fl- it flips and you got to keep up as things are occurring. Right? So, so at 100 units, what ends up happening, the entrepreneurship of the model, okay, now becomes a barrier to get to the next level. And some, there's a book written called The Founder's Trap mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where they talk about that, right? So where the entrepreneurs are wearing these multiple hats, falls apart because you can't wear, wear multiple hats. And that's when you start turning the business over to professional management. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of something interesting that occurs, right? So how many entrepreneurs start businesses because they love corporations? <laughs> None. So it's a pushback, right? Right. It's almost a fly. It's a, it's almost a fly. So it's when the entrepreneur realizes they must become what they despise. On many instances, on many fronts. Mm-hmm. So there's almost pent up or built in organizational resistance. Mm-hmm. Okay. To, to to creating the organizational structure that you need uh, to go from 100 units to 400. I will tell you that 100 to 400 is a straight shot. If you've done things right. Yeah. If you do so things right at 100, fly, right? Yeah. You see, so, you, so at 100, you layer in professional management. Ideally, that's where you like, you know, the golfing buddy is director of marketing. Doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the guy who's running accounts receivables is 25 years old that you gave to the, the CFO title to. Doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you really need to bring in. That's where the title inflation stops. Ex- it has to. Mm-hmm. Okay, or, or you pay that bill. They leave. Mm-hmm. Right, and they leave at the point where you you really need to keep your institutional knowledge to get to that next level because you're, tra- you're, you're that's where you're become a learning organization. Right, you're training a lot of people fast. You're building out your organization, but if you build out the organization properly, you know you bring in the CMO, you bring in the CFO, uh, you you, know, you bring in the di- director of training who's actually oh by the way an adult learning expert. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you bring in. Uh, field support people that can actually read a PNL. In the book, you go through this exactly. Yeah. yeah, in the book, well, we call it "Future of Franchising" is the, is the name of that book, and it's a download from my website. By the way, I got the picture that we were looking for. So we're yeah. definitely going to link. We're going to link to that. So we should make a note of that. Okay. The future is that for purchase or can no we free download. Okay. It's a free download from our website. And for those who haven't heard uh, Joe speak on this subject, um, this book is probably the all-encompassing of all of the things that you've spoken on over the years. In the last two, three years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for He has the, the very famous blog post where, I mean, my, my old office, we would see the email come through and we'd all stop what we were doing and we'd read it, which I don't know, even know if you knew. I didn't know that, but I'm clearly not worthy of that. So thank but you. It, but it, was, it was something that, you know, is a lot of people in franchising look up to, look up, look out for that. So definitely pretty cool that that'll be in one place which is great.
And now, a word from our sponsors. Successful franchise systems are based on a consistent approach to business processes and compliance, as well as sound operational and financial controls. BDO is a leader in franchise accounting and advisory services, providing a comprehensive suite of integrated value-added services to franchisor and franchisee clients. The complex and diverse issues you face today warrant franchisors, franchisees, owners, and senior management to work with a firm that combines substantial resources with practical services. To learn more, please visit www.bdo.com. That is www.bdo.com. Um, I think an idea, I think something that I kind of wanted to explore a little bit more was the idea of, uh, of private equity and just specifically uh, some some characteristics that you know you could recommend for emerging franchisors that um, that they could do um, in addition to what you've already discussed. Is there anything that you feel like that you've missed uh, that you think that PE firms are looking out for that you know people may not be doing? Well, there's an evolution of the PE firms uh, in the market. So let me just tell you kind of what's going on and where's sure. it going, if I can. So you know, so Sorok was real proof of concept, you know, for in, in focus brands for for PE, right? Mm-hmm. So Sorok started out buying in. Uh, good brands from founders, yeah, uh, and I, I don't exactly remember where their what sweet spot was. Probably in that one to three million EBITDA spot, mm-hmm. uh, and then they assured legacy. That was their, you know, so they're not a buy and flip organization. They hold their brands, right? Mm-hmm. You know, now they're I believe yeah they're I don't know they're on their fifth, sixth, seventh fund, um, and you know they're starting like yeah ten million in EBITDA. You know, so they're buying the big brands. Mm-hmm. So a lot of private equity are coming in. If you read their, like, we, I have uh, two private equity clients right now. So one is a one, they have an active $1.2 billion fund, okay, with a franchising thesis with a $5 million EBITDA minimum, minimum, right? Wow. So they want to stroke $100, $150 million checks, yeah. right? So that's a competitive bid situation against the Rorks in the world. Now, how many... How many brands actually fit that out of the 3,800 out there? There's like yeah. several hundred. Yeah, Mostly, right? most, is it, would you say that that trends more food than not food? It would trend more food today, but mm-hmm. there's plenty of service brands that have grown into that space. Mm-hmm. And you, you, know, you see that with like with Neighborly, and you see these other consolidators picking uh-huh. up these brands. So, you know, so, so service retail, uh, service brands are, are coming on strong in that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, but largely, to, at least today, just because there's more food brands than any other particular category, you see more food, but that's going to sure. change, right? Sure. But we, the other thing you're going to see is uh, because they're getting competitive bid situations, you're going to see more equity firms going downstream. Mm. So they're going to say, why do I want to pay 12x for a brand doing 5 million EBITDA when I could do buy a brand at two million, maybe pay seven or eight or nine, Yeah. grow it up to five, and I got my exit, Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? It's good because there's a competitive bid situation. Sure. So, so you're gonna see more and more private equity firms going downstream. Now, why have they done it yet? And this is, like if you're asking, did you start Franchise Performance Group thinking you're gonna have private equity clients? That had never even dawned on me. Mm-hmm. So, so, there's, so there's a couple things that are occurring in franchising that's bringing private equity in. So private equity, what's happened historically in the past is they buy a brand thinking in the world of private equity, think about a private equity guy, mm-hmm. or it's a consumer-facing model. Mm-hmm. Then they go in there and they say, hang on a second. There's another model in here called franchisor. I don't know how to research it. I don't know how to mitigate yeah. my risk. I don't know what makes it work. Yeah. I didn't even know it was a business. Okay, and it, it seems to be my limiting factor. 
Mm-hmm. Right, so so yeah, so you got private equity pushing a particular model to the board and uh, to fit, for, fit a particular fund thesis, and it's not the model they think it is, mm-hmm. right? So you, so what you've seen like is um, franchising specialty uh, private equity companies starting to form now, right? Yeah. That are franchisees, they're large scale operators bringing the, the franchising expertise, mm-hmm. and that, that's another way to go. A company like ours, uh, they're, they're doing business with us because instead of per- we don't bring personalities to the table, we bring intellectual property mm-hmm. to the table. We have systems for recruiting franchisees. We have systems uh, for supporting franchisees. We have s- models for corporate culture. Mm-hmm. We have leadership development uh, for executives. So, so, so we have systems and, 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 and proven uh, processes, structures, and intellectual property to grow particular brands that we've hammered out over, you know, over thirty-five years, and then uh, you know, and since two thousand two as an organization. Mm-hmm. Now, people on our company, you know, we've touched the, uh, we got about hundred years combined franchising executive experience and worked with one hundred twenty different brands since we started. So that's a lot of institutional learning. Sure. Yeah, private equity is placing and will continue to place a high value. Yep. On that, because the, you know, for the. Uh, because we become then their growth engine, right? Okay, so they're going to need to partner with companies and growth vehicles like Franchise Performance Group and, and create co-investment opportunities to drive businesses forward. You know, um, they're going to work with companies like ours. Why? Because we know where to look. We know where the risk is. Yeah, okay? we know where the bones are buried. Like, let's like your mom and dad. Like, they could go into any particular organization, walk around the office, and say. Yeah or no, based yeah. on you know, their 30, 40 years of doing what they've been doing, right? Sure. So that institutional knowledge is, is, is extremely valued now within private equity. So you're going to see more, uh, more of that going on. And then the other thing would be, if you're going to build a 700-unit brand for $10 million exit, one way to do it is you, you recruit one, two, three franchisees at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Another way to do it is you pick off these equity, you, you pick off weak brands and you, and you reflag them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's going to be massive roll-up opportunities. Like you take a, a segment like senior care. Mm-hmm. What are there, 80, 100 brands operating in senior care? Is that what the market wants? Is that what the market needs? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I, I can see that there are a lot of them, but I guess that um, it's always a question that I always have asked people, like what's the difference between them? Is there different nuances? And they all seem to have an answer. But I think that one of the answers that I've always been curious about it, and honestly, I was going to bring this up to you, so I'm happy you did bring it up. Um, just about um, if you feel that, you know, because the market, is, because I guess our, our population here in the U.S. is aging so much, and, you know, the, the number that they always they always throw out, like, a number that I don't exactly remember, but about how many baby boomers are, are you know, are aging to, you know, 65 to, to 65 and older every day or whatever it may be, and it's a huge number. Okay, wrong. It's right. too but you know, I, I don't know if the market reflects needing that many. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but you would know better than we would. So. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about from the consumer side. I'm talking from the investor side. Sure, yeah. that's right. Really, so yeah. you, so the, the investors would, yeah, when you know the value is being created, you know, once somebody's got more than 100 units, right? So what, what's the likelihood that 80 to 100 brands are all gonna get to some level of sustainability where they're adding value back to the franchisee? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a bunch of marginalized players out there in, in a very, I'm going to call it a commoditized segment. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what you're going to see is, now, that, that's, that's one way to go, right? So you're going to see private equity pick off uh, some of the weaker players 
okay, and then re-platform them into what they would believe are the stronger brands. Now that's going to create culture issues from the franchisee side. You're going to have to reacclimate, you know. So, so um, there, there's going to be a cottage industry. I think of consultants going out there just working on corporate culture, shared values, getting franchisees on board because they don't have to. They have to choose to. And that's not happening See, now, I, really, right? I come, I come from like the first business. Uh, the first business that I was in and that I helped build was actually a point of sale software company in the, the merchant acquiring world. That's how all the big merchant service companies grew through acquisition. You, you just go me buy seven years ago. You know that, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I do remember with, with uh, Ninjis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I think it was five years ago. You guys should have went with us. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, some. I mean, some of my mentors they built literally multiple hundred million dollar companies, and the way that they grew is they would go buy the smaller offices. And so there, there is. I think it's. I think you're exactly spot on. There's there, something's got to happen, in terms of in in terms of their will. The, does the market really want hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brands in in a particular segment? Probably not. So I mean, my numbers would say the market would support about a thousand franchisors. Wow. It's got four thousand. Wow. Not so again, that's what, so a thousand franchisors. Well, my assumption is the the the. the, the the stakeholders of the franchisor have to get a good return on their investment to want to be in franchising, right? Mm -hmm. And my assumption is, you know, to add any type of value, you know, you have to get be able to get to two hundred or, or three hundred, four hundred units or more, right? So, so how many of those brands will the market support on fourteen thousand, fifteen thousand buyers, right? So you so see, you map it out, and it's it's a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred. Uh, type brands, but it's got four thousand. So there's got to be consolidation. I, I think it's. I think it would be. That's a, already started, by the way. I th I th yeah. I think it's interesting to ask you the question. Of, I'm kicking the tires and I'm trying to pick which brand to invest in. And you made the analogy of the stock market. You, you have your blue chip stocks and you have your your riskier stocks, and that's it's plain. It's there. You have all the data and all the information. I and mean, when we do have. Uh, franchise disclosure document and yada 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 um, but it's kind of tough for a prospective person coming into a franchise system to really compare apples and apples well the what they day. can't so, do with the diagnostic that doesn't exist uh -huh. uh, we're, we're, we're we have a work a, a rough model but there's where's the franchise or diagnostic Right, so when a franchise candidate is looking at what to invest in, they're doing unilevel economics. They're looking at it from the consumer standpoint. But how do I know the franchisor is going to be around in ten years? Right. Okay. You, you know, know it's a lot of these franchisors, if they're early stage, they're private companies, mm -hmm. right? So they're, they're operating under a shell corporation called something, something, something franchising development LLC mm -hmm. or whatever. Right? They've got horrible financial statements that you don't know. You, you assume it's. You don't know if it reflects reality because it's a shell corporation. Show me a shell corporation that has good financials, right? You know, so, so it's, it's really hard to assess franchisor risk if I'm a franchise candidate. And yes. I'm seeing today, right now, I, I think some of the bigger risk a franchise candidate has is on the franchise is the franchisor risk. Not even, yeah, you know, there's this brand risk attached to the franchisor that has nothing to do with what's going on in the unilevel economics. You know, I was a franchisee of a system one time. I made good money. Uh, when I was 25, 30 years old, uh, publishing a magazine, and the franchisor folded up, walked away, destroyed the business, over literally overnight. Okay, how did I know that was going to happen? Yeah. Right, but but that those are the things that are going to occur as franchisors start consolidating. Mm. You know, so here's something that's never happened in franchising generally. 
there are franchisors that are going to wake up tomorrow and they're going to read in the newspaper, okay, that a private equity firm just invested $25 million into their competitor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now what you're, now tell me what your business is worth. Tell me where you're, like, now it's, well, you know, well, some would just say that's validation. I mean, I'll play the others, the devil's advocate there is that, hey, that's validation. Well, validation okay. proof. For who? The, the concept that just got hey, if I'm in business, <laughs> Yeah, if I'm in business and I don't have any competition, then that not, isn't necessarily a good thing. It, it doesn't validate the model that doesn't get bought. If anything, it invalidates the model. Yeah. Because they didn't get bought, right? They weren't, they weren't the chosen ones, Yeah. right? So like when private equity uh, signs Franchise Performance Group up to uh, an operating partnership and lets us co-invest in different brands with them. Got it. That's not validation for the consultants that didn't get that offer, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I think on some level, look, I compete in a business where I compete against people that have private equity and we beat them, you know, we, we go after them. And so but we, we just chose not to take private equity, well, right? But, but you could have. You, yeah. But again, the model stands on its own. What I'm saying is that there, there's models out there Okay, that their, their competition just got beefed up. Yeah. And private equity doesn't play to lose, right? Yeah. They play to win. And these are smart guys yeah. and they learn fast and they're resourced and they got networks. You know, they you know, they're not gonna do it on a shoestring. Right? So so that I would say that that when private equity is gonna start coming in, they're gonna start devaluing uh, franchisors. You know, and then a lot of a lot of a lot of people listening to this podcast right now will say, Oh, well private equity is gonna buy my company, oh it's gonna be at a premium. Baloney. If you're not just if you're a pick off target, that's going to be at a discount. I think this is a super interesting thread because you just said something that I think is relatively. I think I think there's a lot of legs behind it. Is and people don't really know that. That's I mean it's pretty incredible because we're I mean we're meeting on this tour. We're meeting with some of the largest multi unit franchisees on the planet, and these I mean these are the rock stars. <laughs> yeah, like they're building they're building organizations that are thousands of people way bigger. Than the franchisor operation, even but their own franchisor in some like instances. literally even their own franchisor, exactly. more employees than their own franchisor. But that's it's just inter- that's very interesting. So, I haven't really thought about that. So there's no way that a franchisee, a big franchisee, can be protected if a franchisor shuts down. Uh, they can be protected in some ways because they've got businesses, yeah. right? You know. Um, but in, in, in my case, as a publisher, the franchisor is putting out the magazine, not me. I was distributing it. Mm-hmm. So when they shut it down. Yeah, it's like you were shut it, down. It would be like I had no product. Okay, so yeah. So I'm just saying example-wise, let's say some person owns like don't name a brand. 80, 80 like Applebee's or something. Okay? <laughs> I said don't name a brand. Well, they could probably still use the name. Mm-hmm. Okay, they would have supply lines, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they'd have a particular customer base. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they could be probably easy, re- easily, or reasonably replicate the marketing. Yeah, so so that would be lower risk, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to what if I'm a franchisor and I get a proprietary product that I distribute to the franchisees yeah. and it's patented. Yeah, then you're and right. I go away. Well, so does the business, mm-hmm. right? And so and now I, I like. Patented products and, and unique yeah. products and services where I uh, I've got exclusivity because that gives me competitive advantage in the marketplace. That's not without its risk, right? It, where there's risk, where, there, where there's it doesn't risk work. You're really screwed. Yeah. So, question that I had for you, uh, you kind of you, you talked about roll-ups earlier, and that's actually something that I have often wondered about. And 
I know that it's going to happen. I don't know when, but I know it's coming at some point. And I'm just kind of curious as to um, if you feel that, you know, in those instances that a larger brand eating up a smaller brand, that that's what, the term we can use. Um, do you think that they would be paying the same multiple that, say, a PE firm would be paying? Or do you think it would be different? Uh, how how does how do those two things differ from each other, I suppose? Yeah, so... Um it has to do with the quality of the organization mm -hmm. and the quality of the earnings. Mm -hmm. So when PEs evaluating a business, right, they're looking at a couple of things, mm -hmm. right? So one is they're looking at the predictability of their royalty income, mm -hmm. which is really what they're yeah, finding a lot of value to, right? So if you've got you like you know, like uh, we're working looking at you know particular acquisition opportunities for private equity, and we're seeing. People doing like no kidding, doing two hundred thousand, and people doing four million in the same system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with no predictable, no predictability. But what's the quality of the earnings? Right, you got to yeah, so you know there's going to be some discounting uh, going on that uh, to, to cover the franchisees that might leave. Right, can't mm -hmm. really assign a value to that. Right. Sure. Uh, if I'm looking at a brand uh, and they're not the category leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're being outmaneuvered. They're they're operating. They they you know, they don't historically have a good penetration strategy against the category leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, that there's fierce penetration already in markets that they're not in, mm -hmm. right? Which raises my cost of entry. Then then I'm I'm going to discount that brand, yeah. mm. right? Because because it, it's they they're looking at they're going to look at quality the growth opportunity. And they're going to look at quality of earnings and and uh, and risk, right? Uh, and it's all a lot of that's going to be tied to royalties. So, and what I'm hearing too is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, is that you know the brands that are typically going to, you know, they they look at it either I would like to get acquired by a private equity, but I don't feel I'm the, you know, the market leader, so to speak, or in anybody's eyes, maybe except my own. Um, is it even a smart business decision to kind of seek out? Um, you know, being courted by their largest competitor, or do you feel that it's better for them to just keep staying on the course and just continue to? Uh, it's a personal decision. Sure. Right. So I would tell you that there's a lot of uh, franchisors out there that their leadership, from an ego perspective, right, they have control issues. Mm -hmm. So that, that if you look at the external data, there's nothing that would say they're ever going to be a long-term viable franchisor. Mm -hmm. But seemingly, they would rather own 100% of something predictably worthless mm -hmm. than 40%, because a, a private equity firm is going to probably go by controlling interest. Sure. But, but they'll let them stay on and then and then go for the ride, that mm -hmm. seven-year ride. They'd rather own 40, and then they'd rather own 100% of something that's predictably going to be no value than 40% of something that could really turn into something. Mm -hmm. Just small time, small thing, and it's 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 that uh, you know, human component, right? You know, right, self limitation, dysfunction, uh, self sabotage. Hmm. Interesting, and that's by the way, entrepreneurs are a different breed, and there is the ego often involved. Um, your company, you mentioned that you're you're working with a couple of private equity groups. Sounds like you are helping them find the skeletons in the closet, you're consulting with them, and then you also mentioned that you have these systems, and so are you doing, are you doing work with, follow-on work with them after investments, and tell us a little bit about some of the services that... Well, it's the same services we provide franchisors today, 
right? They just uh, just uh, private equity just assigns seems to, you know signs a high value because they got to mm-hmm. grow their investments, yeah. right? Uh, so yeah, they uh, they sought us out uh, at the IFA convention first private equity from about two years ago. They were looking, they went there specifically looking for a strategic growth partner. Yeah, and they uh, they interviewed a bunch of guys. Uh, and they they looked at our work and they just chose us as. And we're honored to, show, uh, to be their strategic growth partner. So when they do an acquisition, they just knew that they had to roll in that piece yep. for quality growth. You know, private equity is a saying, buy right, build right, sell right. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we would be the build right uh, part of that equation. We would show them how to build, work with their organization and, and, and make sure that their organization is being built right. Yeah. Having, having an industry insider is very helpful, obviously, yeah. for things like that, too. Anything else in the book, um, and we want folks to go check that out, but anything else in the book that we haven't touched on that you think we should? Uh, yeah, I, I want to I throw out a challenge to the to you guys in particular, the millennials, and Gen X, Gen Y in franchising, because you're the next generation of leadership, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, guys like me, we're, at the, uh, we're playing the back night, clearly, in our careers, right? So <laughs> I want to give a little bit of quick history in franchising, kind of how we got to where we are yeah. now, and then what are we counting on your generation for? Okay. You know, so I, so I would say there's three eras. We're, uh, we're moving into the third era of franchising now, so I'll call it 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Mm-hmm. So, Zach, Sherry, your mom, your dad, me, I would say we started with 1.0. So my first boss was Fred DeLuca. So Fred DeLuca... Fred who? I'm yeah. <laughs> I knew Fred when he was only a millionaire. So, <laughs> pause for laughter. So anyway, yeah, so uh, he used to say, well, what's franchising? He'd say, well, I can own them, I can franchise them. It's like, like chocolate or vanilla, right? Yeah, so he saw it literally as a distribution model. Yeah. You know, in his world, my brand, my customer, my system, my, 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 and then franchisees are points of distribution. They get to open it up and do business according to my plan, right? Mm-hmm. Almost like a sharecropper, yeah. indentured servitude yeah. kind of model. That's how they thought, right? Then our generation came up and said, you know, it's way more complex than just a distribution model, right? It's, it seems to be a business unto itself, right? So, so, so then our generation of leaders you know, we created the CFE program, we beefed up the IFA, we created all these conferences. Uh, some of us wrote books. Uh, I was a CFE instructor. Yeah, why? Because we're, we're just, uh, like we're trying to f- figure out the winning formula, right? We're flying the plane, you know, while we're building it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the contribution we made is we got the market to look at franchising as a business unto itself. Mm-hmm. And then the best then we did the best we could, well, we knew how, because we all got into it by accident. Nobody got into it on purpose. We just fell in love with it while we were in it, right? Well, we took it as far as I think we could uh, as a community of uh, codifying the model, mm-hmm. the franchisor model. Now, now, franchising is a $700, $800 million, if you aggregate all the uh, billion dollars, if you aggregate all the sales, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're literally twice the size of the automotive aftermarket, which is about $300 billion, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you take the automotive industry, just to see how far we are apart, you know, can you get a PhD in automotive engineering? Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a whole school system, right, designed, okay, to, to perpetuate the ecosystem yep. of, of cars, right? 
things. There, there, there's auto repair shops. There's aftermarket, right? Uh, there's actually there's analysts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? There's rating systems like yep. JD Powers, all right? Yeah. There, there's there's websites with transparent information. But look at the look, look at what exists in as far as an ecosystem, right? To help people buy good cars, okay, and keep them on the road longer. And you know, the response is we got the largest fleet of autos in the history of automotive, and we got the oldest mm-hmm. uh, fleet of auto in the history of automotive. So the ecosystem works. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's look at franchising's ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Where does franchising exist in the physical world? Not really anywhere. <laughs> right? So yeah. franchising is like we sit in an office and we talk about franchising. That's where it exists. We go to Starbucks. We go to the IFA. We hold these tertiary conferences like Springboard, Merging Growth. We get on buses. You know, buses drive across country. And we talk to people with diverse opinions, right? Yeah. But, but they're, they're, it doesn't exist in book form. It doesn't exist in university form. It doesn't exist in any tangible way. People are trying, but it's, you know, it's I mean, it's, it's a, but it, it's... It's a $760 billion there, and that's still operating a bit, a bit, as the wild, wild west, right? Now, now I believe private equity is going to help franchisors up their game and professionalize it, right? Mm-hmm. We, we took a private equity guy, a venture capital guy, actually, to, uh, at the IFA, and we introduced him to our client base. I remember, like, like he said, he, he, we show him a chain. They do a billion dollars in sales. And the guy goes, "That's not a CEO of a billion dollar company. That's not a CEO of a billion dollar company." And you know what? He's right. Because even though he's representing a billion dollars in sales, the company's probably only doing sixty million. Yeah. Right. Because royalties. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe maybe a hundred million. So 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 we so we we have the leverage. Yeah. Right. Of the system-wide sales, but we, we maybe we don't have the talent pool uh, of you know other you know multi you know, hundred billion dollars plus segments. So we so we haven't done we haven't done the work right. So I, I do think um, the three you guys okay. If you think about what did you guys bring to the table? Did you know what franchising was Zach before you got into it? Yes. Okay. Did you know what it was before you got into it? I did. I have a okay. cool story I'll share over drinks. Yeah, my, my daughter's recruiting franchisees. She knew what it was since she was three years old, right? I did too. You know, it's exactly. You know, so so you have a generation of leadership, okay, that have been around it their entire lives, right? So 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 I, what you guys will be, we're, we're counting on you to do is take our models, okay, take our ideas, okay professionalize them and actually bring them, you know, bring them into the physical universe so people can actually benefit from it. So franchising doesn't exist just in the form of a conversation which are fleeting and no staying power, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you gotta make it tangible and you gotta, you gotta make it searchable, right? And we gotta get some unity. We don't even have standard definitions in franchises. We're, not even, we're talking about franchises, we're not even using the same language. Mm-hmm. A lot of acronyms being thrown around that mean different things from it for different people. I think that that's definitely a problem. I think that the the CFE definitely does a decent job of like certifying that you understand what franchising is, but I don't. On a cursory think, level, yeah, right? on a on a 1.0 level mm-hmm. or or 2.0 level, yeah, but it's not, it's the, you know, it won't give you a mastery level understanding. Yeah, yeah. So we we, we need uh, an ecosystem that will will take executives like yourselves. Okay, give them a master mastery level understanding what franchising is and what and how it works. 
Why? So they can deliver the value to the entrepreneur who deserves it. Make it more academic, you mean. But at the end of the day, why do we exist? Mm-hmm. Right? So, so, well, we don't even, we, I don't think we even have standardized opinions of why, why franchisors exist. So when we're working with a client, we might make sure that we have shared values with a client. Mm-hmm. So we would say the franchisor exists to add more value to the, to the entrepreneur and to the franchisee than they extract in royalties. Period. Some franchisors would say the franchisees exist to pay them rent. Gold royalties. Yeah. Well, who wants to join that chain? And then they wonder why they're suffering. And, fran- and why do franchisees exist? I would say franchisees exist to add more value to their customers than they're extracting in price. Yeah. So if the franchisor is adding more value to the franchisee's investment than they're extracting in royalties, and, and at the same time the franchisee is adding more value to the customer than they're extracting in price, isn't that what a winning brand looks like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that, it's that simple. It's not easy, but it is that simple. Now, we have to train into that. How? I mean, where do those training programs exist? And that's kind of what I think we're counting on the next generation of leadership to provide the community. Yeah, and I think that you bring up a good point, and I think that that's maybe Ryan and I never really defined why we're doing this, but I think that one thing that we have been saying in as many words is that for us, the reason why we didn't, you know, of course the cash that they gave us was important, but I think that also the fact that, you know, my, that my parents and, and, and Lane Fisher had the foresight to kind of look at us both and be like, this is an opportunity because people, you know, we've been in this industry for a long time and we've been saying these things, but our voices have been heard enough. And I think that we need to have different voices from a different viewpoint from a younger generation who are hungry. And I believe that they kind of looked at Ryan and I as being the two crazy kids that would be willing to just go on a bus and just do this all over the country. And I think that um, consolidating all these opinions and trying to educate people on one centralized place is what you know, I think a lot of people have wanted to do and have strived to do. And I think that that's what they're, they've been trying to accomplish through conferences, but it's not all the time, right? You want to be able to take this on the go everywhere. And I think that it's really hard to get in front of people like yourself uh, unless it's consumable all the time. You know, I mean, you, you don't have time at all, all the time, you know? I mean, I think it's just hard. And I think- I would always make time for you, Zach. Oh, well, thank you, I appreciate that. But I'm one of the few, so I mean- <laughs> I know I'm just- In fairness. In fairness. royalty. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I, it, no, I wouldn't say exactly, I would say that you are to me. So I mean, you've, I've always looked up to your opinion, and I think that it's important for people to have this in a consumable way all the time when they're on the go, because that's what society is now, right? And I think that, you know, our mission in as many words is that we want to be able to bring this education to people wherever they are. And I think that that's what FranchiseWorks.com is trying to attempt to do. And I hope that we are successful. That basically means that Ryan and I need to do our jobs well, which I believe that we will do, but we'll find out. But I'm I'm happy that you bring that up because I hope that we're, you know, trying to make that happen because I think that that's really important is that there isn't really standardization I try my best to educate as many people as I can about what this model is about. They basically are, they're probably thinking they want me to shut up most of the time. People that aren't in franchising, I talk about it way too much, but you know, I love it. And I think that more and more people, you know, in this industry that are our age, Ryan, will will get into it soon. You you will find that you're the, you will be the hit of every cocktail party that you want. All you have to do is say, I'm involved in franchising. What's the next follow-up question? What is it? What what's hot? 
What should I be investing in? I was thinking of starting a bit. The next thing you know, you, you dominate the conversation. It already happens now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah. In, in New York City, when I lived in New York City for, for three, four years, most of my friends were in finance. And I have, I've had probably, I've been positioned as an expert in franchising. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm not an expert in franchising. I'm 25 <laughs> years old. I, I just graduated three years ago. What are you talking about? But I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because... A lot of very smart people in the PE space and the growth equity space and the venture capital space are all looking at this as like, wow, I think I can do this better than a lot of other people can. And it's not that they're doing it badly. It's just that I think that their businesses are ready to take things to the next level. And I think that the founder can still be involved. But I think that there needs to be, you know, a professional CEO or something of that nature that comes in and really, you know, runs, knows how to run a business, you know, in the way that we all would want it to be run. So. so where do people go to get in contact with you and with FPG? Uh, go, we go to our website, you know, which is at franchiseperformancegroup.com. And everything we do, all our blogs, all our intellectual property, it's all on there. Mm-hmm. Now, as a consultant, a lot of things, you know, it's, if I'm buying a consultant, I would like to know what I can get before I get it. Right? So we make sure that everything we do, well, how we think and how we execute, it's all on the website, either through blogs, articles, or case studies. Uh, so, you know, so feel free. We're inviting franchisors to go there and you know, peruse and you know, read the articles and understand you know, what it is we do and what works in franchising. Well, Zach and I will take your charge and your cha- your your challenge and the 3.0 uh, charge to heart. Can, uh, can I throw one more yeah, out there? Three point oh, because I, I I mentioned I, I wrote a book on franchising 3.0 called the future of franchising mm-hmm. and i want to talk a little bit two seconds about why i did it and i want to invite the reader to participate yes okay so it's a free download from our website on franchiseperformancegroup.com and we wrote it to do be a wiki book all right so i'm inviting everybody to read it. it's only 100 pages i consolidated it down to 35 years of experience and work at 120 different brands uh, down to 100 pages models graphs what we say work and doesn't work, not like we're the unlimited authority in franchising. Uh, I'm putting it out to the broader franchisor community now. It's as a final draft. I'm asking you to read it. Bring your experience. Bring your stories. Okay, bring your anecdotes. Bring your copy points. Okay, and let's get this thing down on paper. I'll, I'll take ownership of getting it down on paper, but read the book. Make your comments, get them back to me, okay? And then we are going to publish the final version, quarter one of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with, with everybody's best practices. So, uh, so I'm going to offer that as a free download uh, to all franchisors, executives, employees of any franchisee, franchisor, investor as, as free. Uh, I'll offer it to you guys for the conferences, things that you're doing. Thank you. But, but let's write it together because uh, we, we yeah, because the entrepreneur deserves that, don't they? Absolutely. I agree. Well, well, Joe, thank you so much. And this was awesome for me because I always love hearing what you have to say. And I know that Ryan felt the same way too. We were both really excited for this. So we really appreciate it. And uh, folks, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it as well. And uh, stay tuned for more awesome content. And uh, we will also put a link into uh, Joe's book so you guys can take a look at that and uh, put in your comments in there. Uh, Ryan, anything else you want to add? Yeah. My last question for you, Joe, is uh, where are you taking us for happy hour? Oh, uh, Cool Springs uh, Brewery, right up the road. Make their own beer. Owned by a nice English gentleman. Nashville is a really cool.
cool place, man. I like this. This is it's Franklin, but yes. Thank you very much for coming on, and we will uh, we will participate in in that uh, book that you mentioned. Thank you, and uh, thank you for coming to Music City. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And uh, folks, keep a lookout for uh, our content that will be coming. Uh, we will be traveling to Atlanta uh, next. We'll be in Atlanta, Atlanta on Thursday. Uh, looking forward to uh, having you guys listen to that. Thanks.